You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is time for Searching Scripture in the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us for Searching Scripture today, Pastor Tony Oliphant, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois, has written a wonderful series for us each month in The Lutheran Witness. So today we're continuing our study in Philippians. Pastor Oliphant, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Good to be back. We are in Philippians 3 and 4 today. Let's see, we're picking up at 3 verse 17. Insights before we even dig in today. Yes. So this is going to be the beginning of the end of Paul's letter, where he's going to start giving some encouragement, exhortation to the uh, the recipients of the letter in Philippi. And so we're going to see him kind of giving some parting words um, and so uh, giving them some guidance as they move forward. Shall we? Do you want to read the text before we dig in or do you want to break it up verse by verse? How do you want to go? I think it'll be easier if we break it up a little bit. All right. Okay. So... Let's see. Question one, then. Read Philippians 3.17. It might seem like Paul is boasting when he tells them to imitate him, but review Philippians 3.8-9 and verse 12. How does he regard his own works? And in light of this, why would Paul tell the Philippians to imitate him? Also see 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. All right. So yes, this is one of those verses that at first glance, it can kind of seem like, what is what is Paul doing here? It sounds like he's kind of self-aggrandizing, where he'll say, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And this is one of those things where you know, if we're reading it out of context and we're not taking into full account everything that Paul has said just a couple of verses before, it might seem like he's really kind of putting himself on a pedestal. But if we remember just what he said, you know, a few verses earlier, where he said, indeed, I count everything. Now, remember, he's talking about his works and his qualifications. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so he's talking about not his own righteousness that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So Paul, what he's doing here is he's really... Um, encouraging the Philippians to not just follow him, but to follow the example of Christ. And we see this uh, in a verse that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, 1, Corinthians 1, 11 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so we kind of have a little bit of a transitive property here, for those of you who remember your elementary school mathematics, right? <laughs> A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if the Philippians follow the example of Paul, and Paul's following the example of Christ, then the Philippians are following the example of Christ. And this is going to be important at this era in the church. This is very early on in the church's history after the ascension of Jesus. We have to remember that the Gospels um, are either still in the process of being written, or if they have been completed, they're still in the process of being circulated throughout the church. And they didn't have, you know, mass rapid communication like we're able to do here with podcasts and radio and email. But we're but so there's still these things that are being circulated and slowly making their way across the church. So a lot of times the only word of Christ that people will have are from those who are delivering it directly, like Paul, or those who have heard Paul's preaching and are speaking it in the church, the churches that Paul has set up, as in Philippi. All right, question two. Not all who have heard Paul's message have followed in the way of Christ. Read Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19. 
What four characteristics does Paul list in verse 19 that describe those who walk as enemies of Christ's cross? In Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul warned against the Judaizers distorting the gospel, making themselves enemies of the cross. How do the four characteristics listed in Philippians 3.19 apply to the Judaizers? Do those descriptions still apply to those who oppose the cross of Christ today? All right, so in this next section, we're going to see Paul setting up. So he's talked about following his example, which is the example of Christ. But we'll see Paul talking about following the example of the false teachers. And so what Paul's doing here is he's setting up two different paths that that the believers can walk down. They can walk down the path of Christ, which is the path of life. Or they can go down this other path beginning in verse 18, uh, 17, or beginning at 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So these four characteristics of those who are walking as enemies of the cross, as enemies of the gospel... Um, in that one, their end is destruction. So if following the path of Christ uh, results in life, then following the path of the false teachers results in death. Uh, their God is their belly. Uh, Luther has this really lovely term uh, when he talks about the uh, the preachers who are just kind of phoning it in, and they're just preaching to make sure that they have a job the next week. Uh, he calls them belly preachers. <laughs> Uh, because they're just they're just looking for the next payout, and Paul does this. In uh, Luther get, get, grabs this from Paul, where Paul says, "Look, if if they're if they're asking you for more and more and more, it's probably an idol, because that's all idols can ever do is demand more. And so, if their God is their belly, it's going to show you really where their faith is, uh, where their dedication is. That they're going to be self serving." They're going to be focused on just attaining the stuff in this life. The third characteristic here is they glory in their shame. Those things that they should be repenting of are the things that they're holding up as their qualifications, as the things that make them worth listening to, as the things that they actually take pride in. And so Paul here, all the things that he would take glory in earlier in chapter 3, he says he counts it as nothing. In fact, he even repents of these things, right? He says he accounts them as loss. And so he wants to, you know, be rid of them so that he doesn't put any faith in them. Uh, and yet these false teachers are going to be putting faith in their own qualifications, the things that they should be repenting of. And the last, the last of these four characteristics is their minds are set on earthly things, that they're never going to be thinking with the mind of faith. Faith is always going to be running counter to our fallen sinful nature, that the things that make sense to our fallen minds, the things that our minds cling to in this world, are not the things of faith. You know, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Things where Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're thinking of the things of man, not the things of God. That the, the, the minds of the false teachers are always going to make sense to the fallen flesh, but that's because they're fixated on earthly things. And this links in with their God being their belly, and the end being destruction, that all of these things are going to be temporal, short-lived, and that they won't have any kind of lasting salvific or salvation, no value for that. Uh, I don't know if I answered all of my questions in there, but I think I got most of Oh, yeah, so applying to the Judaizers, of hmm. course. And we can see this, too, where we have these, where we have plenty of things that the world wants to celebrate that 
you know, are in clear defiance of what God's will is for our lives. And all we have to do is take a look at the commandments. We can see things like lust, envy, coveting, theft, all of these things that the world will hold up as being, you know, laudable things that it wants to celebrate. And we would say, no, these are these are things that actually end up in destruction. And these are things that 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 a false teacher would tell us is good. But if we're listening to Paul, he would say, no, there's a there's a better, different way. All right. Question three. Read Philippians three, verse 20. Paul returns his attention to those who cling to Christ in faith. What phrase does Paul use to set believers apart from those concerned only with earthly things? Recall that as a Roman colony, the Philippians were granted the rare gift of Roman citizenship, meaning that they had special privileges in the empire and enjoyed protection from Rome's legions. How could this help the Philippians understand what God is doing for them as citizens of heaven? Right. So Paul doesn't dwell too long on on those who are walking down the path of death. He does say in other letters, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? But he will leave that to the Holy Spirit's work to bring them in. But he wants to return his focus to the believers. And so he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And this is really going to, you know, kind of help them refocus. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians would have been really familiar with the idea of citizenship. It was set up as a Roman colony in Greece. And so the, the most of the people who lived there either would have been those who had served the empire in some sort of way and were granted citizenship as a reward, or those who had the funds to buy their way into citizenship. And so as a, as a colony of Rome, as a city made mostly of citizens, they would have certain legal protections. We see an example of this actually in Acts, where Paul is being flogged unlawfully, and then he brings up the fact that he's a Roman citizen, so he gets due process. And suddenly, everybody's afraid to put their hands on Paul. Uh, and so we see here that the Philippians would enjoy that same sort of protected status. Likewise, if Philippi ever comes under attack from an enemy nation, the Roman legions will be deployed immediately to go and protect it because of the, the vested interest that the empire has in preserving uh, Philippi as a trade site and as a point of control for the rest of the, the Greek land there. And so we can understand that the, the Philippians would be able to understand this concept that if we're awaiting a, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that title Lord Jesus Christ is a really, it's a, a monumental claim to make in the Roman Empire. Because remember, the creed of Rome was Caesar is Lord. And so then for a Christian to say the Lord Jesus Christ is actually recognizing this is where our real citizenship is. This is where our real God, our real Lord, our real emperor is Jesus, and we're awaiting him. So if we're under spiritual attack, if we have false teachers coming, guess who's going to come and save us from them? The Lord Jesus Christ. If we have the accusations of the devil afflicting our conscience, guess who's going to say, no, due process. I've already heard the court case. I've thrown out the accusations. We're going to hear, we're going to hear that verdict from the Lord Jesus Christ in absolution. And so the Philippians here, Paul's giving them kind of this this earthly reflection of a a reality that's happening before God's throne in heaven so that they can better understand what the gospel means for them. We are searching scripture with Pastor Tony Oliphant and the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth.
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Goldseth. We are searching scripture in the November issue of the Lutheran Witness with Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. We are in Philippians chapters 3 and 4 today. Pastor, are you ready to go on to question 4? I am. All right. Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, but Philippians 3 verse 20 also tells us that we are still waiting for something. Read Philippians 3 verse 21 to see what we are waiting for. When will we receive this? And how does this demonstrate the now but not yet part of our eternal life in Jesus? All right. So we do hear Paul say, but our citizenship is in heaven. That is present tense. And yet he says, but we're awaiting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is kind of this, he's leaning into the future that yes, our citizenship exists now, but that there's something even better waiting. And he he, he unfolds this in the next in the next verse where he says, "Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself." This is sometimes referred to as the now and not yet of the Christian faith, where we have everything good that God has promised; it's already ours in Christ. And yet now we still, yet we have this little waiting period where we're going to wait to see it in all of its fullness, uh, that we don't see it yet with our eyes, but we know that we will someday. And Paul is going to pin this on the resurrection. And so he's going to see it, in, uh, he's going to see it unfolding here in the resurrection where our, our lowly body, you know, that's afflicted by sin, all the consequences of living in a fallen world of evil done to us and evil that we do that, that, that corrupts our bodies, that our lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. We don't know the, we don't know exactly what that means. We just know that everything that has been, you know, plagued and afflicted by sin will be removed. uh, That'll be fixed with us and that will be like him. And this, he does this by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Again, turning our eyes back to the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he does rule over all things. And it isn't just, you know, so he can wow us with his power or his majesty, but he rules all things for the sake of his church. This is why he takes up all authority at his ascension, so that he can govern everything for the benefit of those who are united to him in faith. All right, question five. Read Philippians 4, verse 1. Paul calls the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord. What endearing terms does he call the Philippians? In light of 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25, how might one of these terms have an even richer meaning? All right. So now we're getting to the the, 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 the parting words of Paul where we're going to see him kind of, sentimental feels like the wrong word, but we are going to see him kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve here at the end where he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He, he talks about how he loves them twice in one sentence. 
He calls them brothers. He says that he, you know, he longs to be with them and calls them his joy and his crown. This is some, some really beautiful language. If we look at the way that Paul has talked about this term crown before, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's going to talk about those, do you not know that all who race, do you not know that, all in, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. This would be that laurel crown. That we still see sometimes, don't see it, it's not spoken about as much anymore, but someone who's a laureate is the one who's been crowned with this wreath. So they do it to receive a perishable wreath. So you know, the Philippians would have been familiar with the, the Roman games, the Greek games, or these competitions. But Paul's going to say it's an imperishable wreath. And so Paul actually sees you know, the, the obtaining of faith that the Philippians have through his preaching that this is something he is going to wear with pride, with joy into eternity. That this is something that, that he actually can take pride in, as opposed to the those who are glorying in their destruction. Paul is glorying in the the eternal life of those that uh, he's been united to in the church in faith and in love. All right, question six. Read Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. In what ways... Does Paul live these words even while he's in chains? How would the Philippians live these instructions in their freedom? How can we live in these footsteps of Paul and Christ, both as a communion of saints and as individuals? All right. So we have these these words from Paul here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is talking about rejoicing. I remember it's been a long time since we've talked about the very beginning of this, but Paul is writing while he's on house arrest. So he, he has a physical chain that is likely connecting him to a Roman soldier. So he has a limited range of motion. He can't leave the house without permission. And yet he's saying rejoice. And he's just said, so he's telling him to rejoice. And he said, follow my example, which means that he's rejoicing. That these things that are happening, he actually is happy about it. It's a sign that he is preaching the gospel of Christ, because if Christ was persecuted in this way, then Paul must be following in the path of Christ for him to be persecuted in this way. And so this is where he finds joy in, in being that much, being drawn that much more into the cross of Jesus. And so he tells the Philippians, you know, rejoice in everything, right? Again, I'll say rejoice. To, to be able to speak this kind of peaceful, calm, certain gospel, you know, it, it always is really clear if somebody feels really desperate and they're kind of grasping at straws. And we can always get this kind of a sense in the church too, right? There's there's something new and we've got to do it right away or else everything will fall apart. And for the first time in 2000 years, the church will stop existing if we don't do that. Right. But Paul here is saying, no, let your reasonableness be made known, right? That that this is that, that the church can wait. The church can speak calmly. The church can speak confidently and reasonably because it has the Lord of all wisdom on its side. And that the Lord is at hand. He, that means he's right there with us. 
So what do we have to worry about? What do we have to be anxious about? So that we can also present our requests to him, recognizing that he's already granting them and that he'll grant them in ways that we can't even imagine. These, these wonderful, fulfilling ways that, that he knows to be best in his own wisdom. And that this is actually going to give the church peace. That the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that the world could never understand, it's going to actually guard us. It's going to guard us against covetousness. It's going to guard us against idolatry. It's going to guard us against fearing, loving, and trusting things that aren't God. And so that that peace of God that comes with knowing that he's right there with us, knowing that he is going to grant our requests, and that he already has, and we can be grateful for that, that that's what's actually the greatest protection that we have as we go forward out into the world. That's fantastic. I know some of our readers and listeners are going to notice that we skipped over a couple of verses. Yes. Do you want to like, touch we can, on those? Yep, we can talk on those. So <laughs> just before he tells everybody to rejoice, he does speak to two women in the church who seem to be a, a little bit of at odds with each other. <laughs> I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so, you know, Paul is going to say, he does recognize that in the church, we do have human personalities that will sometimes conflict with other human personalities. This is part of the church being made out of sinners, right? That is the most difficult part about being in the church of our Lord, is that we have other sinners, and that we are sinners, and that we are going to sin against each other. Paul seems to, I mean, for Paul to have heard about this in Rome means that it probably wasn't just kind of a squabble, that this was probably a, a knockdown, drag out kind of fight or war of words that these two women were having in the church. And Paul's going to, but notice that Paul doesn't, he doesn't say to castigate them. He doesn't say, you know, kick them out or punish them or, you know, make them, make them shut up. He says, rather help them. Right. And he, he employs this fellow worker. So we can assume that that would be the pastor and preacher there, faithful companion, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side, reminding them that these women, you know, they, they are in the church, they have served faithfully. And to remember that, that these are people who Jesus died for. These are people who are loving and serving their Lord. They still have, you know, the the weight of sin hanging around them, as we all do, but to help them and help them be at peace. And then the next paragraph is that rejoice in the Lord always, and that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. With just about a minute or so, a summary of for today. Yeah. So the the summary would be to to follow the examples of those who have gone before us in following Christ. Even if that sometimes leads into difficult situations or if that leads us into persecution or things that would seem uncomfortable for us, that we still find joy in the fact that we're being drawn into the cross of Jesus, that we're being drawn away from these earthly things that don't last, that do end in destruction. And that we're being drawn to this eternal citizenship in heaven. Um, that is to say that we're being drawn to be in the presence of God forever. 
the presence of God is already with us. We see that in things like the service of, we see that things like the sacrament of the altar. We see it in the word, where, where Christ does speak directly to us through his Holy Spirit and the words that he's given to his apostles and evangelists, that he is really and truly with us. And so this gives us confidence as we're going out of the world. It helps us recognize all of these gifts that we have, even if they're hidden under a cross. But then we walk that path of the cross because ultimately it leads to resurrection and life. Searching Scripture in the November issue of The Lutheran Witness, our guest, Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Pastor Oliphant, thanks for studying God's Word with us. Always great to have you as, as our guest. My pleasure as always. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.